This morning, if you'll turn with me, we've heard already, but our text is from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. So hear God's word for you this morning, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this word, for your inerrant word, your word that guides and directs us, your word that is a means of grace to us. Pray this morning that you would that you would unite our hearts as we hear, Lord, open our eyes and our ears. Work in us, Lord, through this text. Lord, I pray that you would sustain and strengthen me, that you would fill me with your spirit to preach with clarity and with power that only you can provide. Lord, be at work this morning. We pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Christ's name. Amen. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And thus begins a tragic story. David, the king of Israel, from this moment of coveting, went on to commit adultery. He took advantage of a married woman. She became pregnant. Then he ordered his commander to call her husband, a man named Uriah, a Hittite, back to the city where David hoped that he would actually spend time with his wife and cover up his indiscretion. But Uriah was actually too faithful of a man. He was faithful to his fellow warriors and refused the pleasure of being with his wife. 
So David sent him back to the front lines with a note for the commander of the army that actually ensured Uriah's death. And when, her, when Bathsheba, her husband, heard of this, she lamented, she mourned, and then we read the final sentences of 2 Samuel chapter 11. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then months pass. David has held this sin in his heart, and we pick up in chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan the prophet of God said to David, You are the man. And that word struck David to the heart. Nathan pronounced the judgment of God, and David responded a few verses later. It's recorded. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And the psalm we have before us is a fuller picture of that response. I have sinned against the Lord. It's a fuller picture of his repentance the psalm is a lament. It's one of the psalms of disorientation, and particularly, it is a penitential psalm. It's a prayer of a penitent person that is instructive for us on a myriad of levels. The psalm is filled with, with pleas. You kind of have a plea, and then a profession, and then a plea again, and, and then you have uh, more of this, and, and it pictures repentance and reformation. The first nine verses look at that repentance very closely. And from there, David goes on to speak of his desire for reformation, both for himself and for the people of God. And my prayer this morning is that our hearts are struck by this text. It's probably very familiar to most of you, but I pray that you are struck by it. We all need to hear the word of the Lord calling us to see ourselves rightly. We need to hear the prophet of God saying to so many of us, you are the man. So I want you to listen to these first two verses again. Listen like you, you haven't just heard the entire psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. These words display the heart of David, and it's transparent as we see it that David knows he has no claim to what he asks. He asks for mercy and grace, and it actually isn't until the fourth line of the first verse that you know what he's asking for. 
You don't know the purpose, and, and you see that the, four, the first and the fourth line actually correspond. You could easily read, Have mercy on me, O God, blot out my transgressions. But that last part does not come until David lays a bit of a foundation. He says why and how he can ask this. He, he puts forth according to. According to. A, it, it's indispensable for us to see this. That the psalmist asks for mercy. He asks for grace, not because of his goodness, but according to the Lord's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. It's, his, it's firm and immovable. It's, it's not subject to change. The Lord's love has been set upon His people, and there it will remain, and then according to His abundant mercy. This is, as we think of the New Testament, as Jesus is described as one with bowels of compassion, He feels it. This is that abundant mercy, the Lord's deep and sympathetic love for His people. And I think understanding this is foremost in our repentance. If we don't see and know and believe we have such a God. If we don't see the the truth of God and His love for us, we will never go to Him with our sin. And and we can figure that out. It's really hard to go to someone you don't believe loves you or likes you even to confess your sin to them. How would we ever go to God? We need to be well assured of love. And this is the grounding upon which he opens up and confesses. This is a, what allows him to come face to face with that truth that Nathan spoke to him. And Sinclair Ferguson, in a wonderful little book called The Grace of Repentance, wrote this. He said, David's soul was like an onion, with layer upon layer of self-deception and pretense, keeping him from recognizing his true spiritual condition. But this had been stripped away, and he now confesses his sin. David had hid it for a long time. And three words give us a vivid picture of what he thought of his sin, of what he had done, and one is transgressions. And this word implies self-assertiveness. David's folly was to make himself the center of the universe, which is what sin always does. It's why we defend. It's why we fight back, because we have become the center. It's a willful refusal to walk in God's ways. And then there's iniquity. This is the warp of human nature that we're actually twisted. We've been made for God's glory, but we've actually turned it around and we've sought our own instead. We pervert the original design of God. And then finally, sin. It's that larger word for failure, for missing the mark, for missing what we are called to do. And in asking to deal with his transgressions and iniquity and sin, he uses three very descriptive ideas. First, he desires that his transgressions be blotted out, or you might see in a different translation, wiped away. It's erased like the writing from a book. He wants it gone. He wants there to be no more record. And then he asks that he would be washed, because the stain of sin is so deep, only God can wash it away. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Christ can thoroughly wash us. There are imposters out there. There are imposters in our own hearts that think we can wash it through doing different things, but they all fail. And finally, he asks to be cleansed. He 
He desires to have that, that sin removed so that fellowship can be restored. And it's this opening plea that tells us his desire. It's here that we see that, and it shows us his heart, that he has seen his need for grace. But there's still more in this. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Between the end of verse 1 and through verse 3, what's the most prominent word? It's my. My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, my sin, my sin. David doesn't pass his sin on to others. It's his. The blame is not placed anywhere else but squarely on himself. He did not blame Bathsheba for bathing and being good-looking. He didn't blame Uriah for being a man of integrity. No, it was him. It was his sin. No exceptions. And it was ever before him. It was accusing him. It was impossible to ignore, to miss, or to justify. Though actually prior to Nathan coming to him, that's exactly what he sought to do. In Psalm 32, a companion psalm to this, we read in verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silence... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And you can see even in his silence, the Lord was working on him. The Lord would not let his child wander too far. It had eaten at him. An unconfessed sin will do that. It will accuse, though you try and push it down. You know what it is? It's like a beach ball in a pool. Push it down as much as you want, but pretty soon it's going to come shooting to the surface. So let me ask you, do you see your sin? Do you see your sin? Or are you trying futilely to stuff it down? And if you are, are you experiencing things that maybe health issues, maybe other things going on, those can be clues to hiding unconfessed sin. Well, thankfully, David realized his sin, took a, took a prophet of God to help him see it, and he realizes the weight. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So like Joseph in, the old, in, in Genesis, he knows that his sin is truly against the Lord. If you remember when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and he's talking to her and he, he's, he starts off by speaking of Potiphar, he says, Potiphar is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He doesn't say sin against Potiphar he knows that ultimately that sin would be against God. And folks, it isn't that David did not sin against Bathsheba or Uriah or the nation as a whole. He absolutely did. But ultimately his sin, our sin, it's treason against a holy God. It's treasonous activity. And God is faultless in his judgment of David's guilt. We are all guilty before the Lord. The words of Nathan, you are the man, dug deep into David's soul. And I want to highlight one more thing from verse 4. He says, and done what is evil in your sight. Folks, sin 
is what is evil in God's sight. Too often today, we are told to be on the right side of history. That we must get with society's program. Well, folks, too often what society calls good is actually evil in God's sight, and what they call evil is actually good in God's sight. Do not let your definition of evil be shaped by CNN or Fox or MSNBC or anyone else in academia. Let it be shaped by God and His Word. Well, then we come to verses 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Derek Kidner, who's a great commentator on the Psalms, wrote this. He says, The new perspective on his sin as self-assertion against God opens up a new self-knowledge. This crime, David now sees, was no freak event. It was in character, an extreme expression of the warped creature he had always been and of the faulty stock he sprang from. This reminds me of the numbers of times that public figures have held a press conference for the purpose of maybe some type of public confession, at least what they would say, but it turns out to not actually be a true confession. They use phrases along the lines of, I made a mistake, that's actually not who I am. And every time I hear that's not who I am, my ears perk up. Because the reality is, is that's exactly who they are. And it's exactly who we are. What David says here is, is so completely counter to that mentality. We have this constant desire in our lives to save face and to try and preserve what little integrity we think we might have. But that type of false confession won't do. David's confession, his repentance, is actually something that displays integrity because he shows an undivided heart. It is directed towards the Lord. He confesses who he really is. Folks, we all need a much more accurate view of our own sinfulness. And by using the word behold in this, he contrasts himself with the Lord and the Lord's delight in truth. That truth is to resonate to the deepest part of us, to our hearts, to, to speak wisdom to, in, into that spring of our life. We cannot fall to the deception of sin. We are called to live in wisdom and in truth. Well, then, we come to a further plea by David in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. These three verses continue to deal with that guilt of sin, and David alludes to this biblical practice of cleansing. You could really read Leviticus 14, 6 and 7, where there's instructions for cleansing of, of the leper, and they involve hyssop. And hyssop's a, a little bush, it's a branch, and you, you could dip it. And in Numbers 19, there's further instruction on cleansing in general. Starting in verse 18, it says, Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus, on the seventh day, he shall cleanse him, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. 
And so we see this hyssop involved in this process, and so there's, there's a vivid picture for David's readers. And it, David had seen it himself, and he also knew that when that process was undertaken, the priest at the end of the process would go, and you shall be clean. You're clean. You're cleansed through this process. And David adds to that imagery with that the, the washing will make him whiter than snow. You can picture that pure or fallen snow. We don't want it quite yet, but you can picture it before any animals have tracked through it or anyone walked through your yard, and it's just beautiful. It's almost blinding how white it is. And so God, when He cleanses, He cleanses completely. And so as David is cleansed, he anticipates hearing joy and gladness. And that idea, think about this, particularly in the life of a leper, who has been an outcast from society, who when people walk by has to yell, unclean, unclean, and they're cleansed, and they can actually re-enter society. And you can picture the joy and gladness, the shouts of welcome, welcome home, Dad, who hasn't seen his kids in a long time because he's been unclean. What an overwhelming feeling that would be. His brokenness would dance for joy. Folks, sin debilitates. Sin debilitates. It damages. But forgiveness in Christ actually brings new life. It brings joy and gladness. Do you believe that happens? Do you believe the words that the psalm has used? Do you believe you're truly forgiven as one in Christ, that you're fully and completely and, and you're free? Do you live like that? Or do you beat yourself up? Do you continue to, to live burdened by the guilt of your sin? Do you discount Christ's words from the cross? It is finished. If Christ has said your sin is taken and you are forgiven, why do we so often wallow in it and let it continue to affect us over and over and over again when it's been pronounced, you are clean? Folks, we need to learn to live in the joy and gladness and freedom from the condemnation of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's for the repentance. Folks, we need to come to Him in repentance and live in that freedom. Well, then the next three verses begin a plea not so much for forgiveness, but for holiness, for sanctification Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Every time I read that, I hear the 1970s maybe chorus, Create in me a clean heart. By using that word create, David's very intentional because the word creates the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. David is saying, God, you are the only one who has the power to do this. This is not going to come through meditation and mindfulness, through flagellation and, you know, self-deprecation. 
This is only going to come through the Lord creating in me a clean heart. David knows he needs that renewed heart. He needs a renewed spirit. He's the one who needs to be changed. Yet, folks, isn't it so often our tendency when we experience trouble, when we experience issues, when we have a conflict, that we ask God not, Lord, create in me a clean heart, but Lord, would you fix their heart? Would you fix them, please? Because it's going to make it a whole lot better for me. Can you just change my circumstances? You don't hear that in this psalm. Now, the other people may well have their own issues, and I'm sure they do. But his focus is create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so David prays because he knows his guilt that the Lord has not cast him away, not taken the spirit from him. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Listen, our sins cause distance and separation, and we have to wrestle with that, folks. And much of the time, I'm sure you actually do wrestle with that because you feel that. You maybe feel like God's a brick wall that you're talking to. Isaiah, or Psalm 66, I think it's 13, if, if I had unconfessed sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear. We know that as believers, the, the Spirit will never leave us in the sense that He will never fail to continue to dwell in us as the Spirit of adoption, but in other ways, we do grieve the Spirit. And His presence to bless and empower may well be lost or diminished by unrepentant sin. And even a person, a believer, may appear to have been cast off by the Lord. But if a believer, grace will eventually be shown to be present. And I think what Calvin wrote here is actually quite insightful. He says in this text that there is no force in the objection that David speaks as if he feared that he might be deprived of the Spirit. It is natural that the saints, when they have fallen into sin and have thus done what they could to expel the grace of God, we've rebelled against Him, should feel an anxiety upon this point. But it is their duty to hold fast the truth that grace is the incorruptible seed of God, which never can perish in any heart where it has been deposited. This is the spirit displayed by David. Reflecting upon his offense, he is agitated with fears. He's agitated with fears. You can understand that. Yet, and yet rests in the persuasion that being a child of God, he would not be deprived of what indeed he had justly forfeited. I love that last phrase. He would not be deprived of what he had indeed justly forfeited. He had rebelled against God. He had, as king, I think he broke every one of the Ten Commandments. But yet he would not be deprived because he's a child of God, and the Lord has set his love upon him as steadfast love and abundant mercy. David knew the intensity of what had happened, and he longed for restoration, for joy and willingness of a renewed heart. He longed, I think, again for what he had written in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. 
He wants reformation, and with that reformation, with that sanctification, with that becoming more and more like a Savior will come growth and a labor for the reformation of others. Look at verse 13. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See, the person who's been changed, the person who's experienced forgiveness, who's repented and gone to the Lord, will long for that change for others. He or she will rejoice in in the life they have received and instruct others toward it. Think of Luke 22, verse 31, where the Lord Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. It's the natural outcome of restoration. Turn, strengthen, lead, show them the way. Well, then we turn to verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Now, obviously, this was in the midst of the sacrificial system, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, all of that. And here David is, he's not saying that sacrifice is not desired, but that sacrifice that is a mere formality is actually an abomination. Sacrifice or worship without integrity of life does not work. Isaiah 66, you've heard me read the first two verses, but I'm going to go through verse 4. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is this place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering, a frankincense like one who blesses an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. See, what that's telling us is that worship while committing evil, while delighting in your evil and your folly. It's wrong, and it's not going to bring delight to the Lord. What he longs for is repentance and faith, and then that, 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 that is the, that's the primary thing, is the humble and contrite heart, the broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And then our worship is a delight to the Lord. So David then prays these final two verses. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so that prayer there is to build up God's people, to build up the church, for God to work His good pleasure, to restore them so that their worship will actually be a delight to Him. It will be worship with integrity. Folks, this is what we need in life. This is what we need in our churches. 
worship that is not mere formality. People who come and just go through the motions, but their lives the rest of the time do not reflect anything of what they've done. We want worship that delights the Lord with humble and contrite hearts, grateful hearts, thankful hearts that turn to the Lord in all things. Then He will delight in our worship. Folks, I think this is such an important psalm because of what it deals with. Martin Luther, when he wrote and posted his 95 theses, he began it all with these words. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. The whole life of believers should be repentance. Folks, we all sin, and we all will sin until the day we die. So we must also be people who learn to repent, who learn to turn to the Lord, to recognize that we are sinners and certainly as believers in Christ with new life and the Spirit of God indwelling us, we are also saints, but we are at the same time sinner and saint. We do continue to sin and we have to learn to deal with it rightly. We have to go to God. We turn to Christ We turn to the one whose arms are open wide for his people, who say, come unto me, who serves as our advocate, who continually intercedes for his people, who gave his life so that we could have life, who took the wrath that our sin deserves upon himself so that it is no longer there for those who believe in him, those who are united to him. Folks, he gave himself for us. He will save us completely. He will present us to himself pure and spotless. And he calls us to live lives of integrity, to live lives that do cry out, Lord, create in me a clean heart, that cry out according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Lord, blot out my transgressions. So let's be people who consistently and continually turn to the one who is full of mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, and we know that this is something that we all deal with. We all wrestle with sin. Hopefully we wrestle with it. Hopefully we fight against it. I pray that we would be people who turn to you more consistently, who trust and rest in the word of pardon, in the word of grace, in the word of life, that we rest in Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's more than a match for our hearts. Our hearts that often accuse us and fight against us. So Lord, draw us near to you with broken and contrite hearts. Lord, we know that you will not despise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.